Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. We certainly appreciate you. We're trying to make life happen. I'm Lori Steele. Uh, I'm Adam Keaton. Hello. What? Wait, who are you? What? Yes, not Joey Boudreaux. <laughs> All right, sound a little bit different, but we appreciate you being here. Thank you. What's Joey doing? We'll find out. That's a good question. questions. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Sarah Blakemore. All right, guys. Again, thank you so much for joining us here on the Gifted Life podcast. What a show coming up for you today. What are we talking about? That's right. On this episode of the Gifted Life, we're going to be talking to a heart recipient about grateful guilt. Hmm, okay. And we're going to talk about how vulnerability can lead to better connections. All right. We're trying to spur those healthy conversations about organ, tissue and eye donation. Our goal, your goal, our team goal is to make life happen. You guys ready to do that? Let's do it. Let's go. Here we go. Here on The Gifted Life, we are so proud to introduce you to Stephen Taibbi. How are you? Hey, how are you doing? Good. I, I feel like Thank we're old friends, Stephen. Old friends. Yeah. We met many a year ago, almost a decade ago. Are you still looking the same 10 years? <laughs> I've gotten better looking at this stuff. If that was ever even possible, no doubt, amazing. No doubt. I like it, Stephen. So uh, that was part of a, a transplant speakers conference that we had here in Louisiana. We'll talk about that. But we had to get Stephen on the podcast. Uh, he is the author of Grateful Guilt, Living in the Shadow of My Heart. Grateful guilt, living in the shadow of my heart. That is deep. So you wrote this. What is your goal, your mission? Uh, what are you trying to tell folks? Well, I wrote the book because so many people told me I had to. And because um, I have survived things that, you know, I was the first in the world to live through two, two um, operations for ASD repair when I was a child with atrial septum defect. When I had my first operation, the survival rate was... Um, 50% when I had my second operation, I was the first. So up until then, no one had lived through two. And starting though, from that very young age, I had my first surgeries when I was, um, on the day I was born, I had a, a near fatal heart incident on my 17th birthday. I was told I was never going to get past 10 and I was told I wasn't going to get past out of my 20s. And then um, I just kept fighting and fighting. And next thing you know, the doctors are telling me, you beat it, go out and live. Yeah. And then I caught a virus that killed my heart. Oh. So uh. it's been a lifelong thing, but but even since I was a child, I used strategies to stay alive, mm -hmm. even as a child. And that's what the, partly what the book is about, so that others, if they're facing, you know, serious health issues, they realize that they can realize that they need to use strategies too. And that by using strategies, you can get through these things successfully, but you have to fight for yourself. And that's that's what a lot of the book is about, but not all of the book, of course. You mentioned you use strategies to stay alive. Um, can you do you mind sharing with us one of one or two of those things that you did in order to cope and to get through all the stress and trauma that you've been through? All right. Well, after I had my two operations, I you know I was I was told that I wouldn't get out of my teens, mm -hmm. and when I was around oh, ten to twelve, I used to do this, this technique called bullying my heart. And every time I'd be doing something and I'd start my 
and I would feel that my heart was feeling funny. I would sit down in, in you know, that in an Indian position, you know, that um, right. would you cross your legs? And I would just bully my heart. I would yell at it, you know, internally, of course. Um, I would yell at it to go back to work, and I would just really lay into it and tell it was lazy and 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 all that. And and then I'd get up and go back and do the thing I was doing that made me feel bad in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I just kept doing that over and over again for a couple of years. Um, that was one of the things I I did. One of the things I I do now is um, I won't go into a hospital. You know, I won't be a patient in a hospital. And wear a gown. You can't get me to wear a gown unless oh. I'm in um, recovery or something. Mm-hmm. When I got my second heart at Cedars three years ago, I was, they found me in street clothes. And one of the doctors came up to me and said, you know, you, this is brilliant. He goes, um, I know that doctors treat you differently when you're in street clothes versus when you're in a gown. Mm-hmm. And he goes, I actually want to do a study on this. But he was commending me on doing it. But I, I had already ascertained that on my own. So I wear a button-down shirt. Now, we're basically talking about heart patients now, and I'm a heart patient. So I wear a button-down shirt with a pocket so that the monitor, you know, for the telemetry can go in my pocket instead of hanging around my neck. (laughs) And um, and I wear sweatpants. And it's amazing how differently the doctors treat you. Stephen. That's that's another one. uh, This is Adam. Um, Going back to where you were talking about uh, bullying your heart, and you sit in a certain position, and, and I guess you're basically trying to will your body out of a certain state. It's very similar to uh, biofeedback, and I, I think you mentioned that as well, maybe in the book. And uh, Yes. I don't know if they had biofeedback back then, but yeah. I kind of invented it for that's, myself. That's what I was going to say. It's kind of a form of biofeedback mm-hmm. um, that you were doing probably as a kid before you knew what biofeedback was. <laughs> Right. Uh, yeah. I, I, I was, I was I, when I, on my 17th birthday, I had a severe heart incident. And the next day I was brought in. They didn't bring me in the first day because they didn't think I could um, travel successfully and, and not die because I was so fragile. So the next day they brought me in. And that night they were telling my parents that um, they should make arrangements. But when they were bringing me into the room, I saw um, an EKG machine, not an EKG, um, a heart monitor in the hallway. And back then they were the size of the original microwave oven that were gigantic with a little mm. four inch tube as the, as the readout. And uh, I saw that machine and I don't know what, something made me know that I had to have that machine. I demanded that machine. I had to fight for it. Uh, they brought it next to, they brought it to my room. They put it next to me. And I spent the next four days staring at that machine, willing my heart to beat because sometimes the screen would go blank for four and a half times, four and a half sweeps without a single heartbeat. And I would just sit there and will my heart to beat. Wow. And after, afterwards, yeah. my doctor told me he thinks I'm the reason. He said, the only reason you're alive today is because of you. Mm. Wow. So uh, for our listeners who, who don't know what biofeedback is, since I, I threw that word out there, do you have a simple explanation you can tell them or what that is? Or Yeah, uh, it's like, you know, um, you're looking at this heart monitor. And you're looking at this beat, and you're willing yourself to change, change the way that readout looks by telling your 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 mind is telling your heart to do something differently, to do to beat better, to to make the pattern that it's supposed to be making. I think that's the best way. If you have a, if you know, if you have a better way of explaining it, you know, I'm just a layperson. Um, <laughs> I would say it's probably mind over matter. It's that power yeah. that our brain and our mind has over our physical well-being, which the connection is newly made that it 
does matter and it does help. Yeah, it, it does. I have a motto that I made up. It's called, it's in the book. It's called, mind over, I say, mind over matter, mind over heart, mind over life. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. So it, I think it's uh, like Sarah said, it is um, uh, biofeedback is a, a method of being in tune to your own uh, senses and your own f- physical feelings in your body and making small uh, mental changes mm-hmm. and looking for the change in your physical response in simply is uh, is uh, very like mind over matter. Yeah, listening to you, Stephen, I believe you can do it, man. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, just listening to you, we could hear the passion, but I had the pleasure of watching you in action. You also uh, talk about guilt. Uh, a lot of our recipients um, cover guilt. Um, you are alive, thanks to someone um, who said, yes, a hero. Um, I've watched you coach recipients, helping them come to terms with guilt, using their story for positivity, to pay it forward, to help save more lives. Just so passionate about it, and it works. Yeah. I mean, I I think that um, when I first had my um, transplant, and I was traveling around with transplant speakers, uh, I would come home with such rat, I was racked with such guilt. I would, it would make me lay down for days. I mean, honestly, for two or three days, I, I couldn't even, I couldn't even function. But the guilt was so bad. But I, like you said, I, I've converted, I've converted the the guilt into an action. And the action is that, all right, somebody gave you their heart, and you know all the platitudes they were going to die anyway, and all that stuff, which just drives me nuts when people say that stuff. But the fact is, is that you have to honor that heart and that family. The family is involved too. And you have to honor that. And the best way to honor it is to be as productive as you can be with that organ, that you make sure that you honor the family and the donor by being as productive as you can and being as helpful as you can. And I think that's a good way to help um, handle guilt. Yeah. You know, Stephen, I work with a lot of our donor families. So, and I know a lot of times what you're saying is the epitome of what every donor family wants to hear from their recipients. And you've really transitioned from guilt to gratitude. So I'd like to know how it went when you did meet your donor family. Well, first I want to say that gratitude is what got me through everything in the first place. Yeah. So um, when I was waiting for my heart, when the whole thing, all I was was, gra- was grateful. Mm-hmm. And great gratitude is, is the key to, uh, I think it's the key to life. Honestly, I think it's the key to life. You have to be grateful in all things at all times. Mm-hmm. Um, and I live that way. You know, um, I'm sorry, what was the second part of that? I'd like to know how it was when you met your donor family. What was that experience like? was my like? second donor family. The first donor family did not answer. And... Um, which is common, as you know, and yes. uh, one legacy, which is the OPO in LA, said that um, only about three percent of the families respond to the recipients. And um, this family responded after about a year and a half, and we met. And then I just saw them again recently. Uh, I saw them in September, and um, we're actually all very close. And um, mm-hmm. they tell me I'm family now, and Aww. they're very proud that I wrote the book. It was a little difficult for some of them in the beginning. It was difficult for me. I mean, it's a really bizarre thing. You know, sure. I was walking around the house where the guy had his, had his brain aneurysm. His name was David Jacobo, and he's a hero. But his mother, Susan, who, who said yes, is a hero. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the whole family is a hero family as far as I'm concerned. Right. But I'm, I'm aware that I'm walking around in his house with his heart. 
And um, the mother actually wanted to take a picture of me holding his ashes, which was difficult, but I did for her. And, um, and of course, everybody wanted to listen to the heart. Mm-hmm. So a whole conga line of people listened to the heart with a stethoscope. And um, the reactions were pretty intense. Oddly enough, none of the males listened, only the females, mm. which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Um, and how did that make you feel? being a part of that well, for them. It sounds like you, you know, you talk a lot about them, but I want to know how it made you feel. Cause we have a lot of recipients who struggle with the same things. Well, going there was, of course, it's really odd. I mean, it, it, there's no way around the fact that it's odd. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I remember saying to mother, the, the mother, the second time I said, you know, this is really strange for me. Mm-hmm. And she goes, you know, it's really strange for us. Right. And it is. And I tell you the, um, the kind of guilt and, that I, w- I was having from the first heart, I didn't have with this heart for some reason. But this is a different guilt has come in now. I don't know if guilt is the right word, uh, uh, sorrow maybe. The mother is this vivacious, you know, wonderful light woman. She's one of these people with a wonderful spirit. And she tries to act like everything is fine and she's all smiley and everything. But it's easy for me to see that just under the surface, she's falling apart. She's she's crying. She's she's hurt. She misses her son, mm-hmm. and and I'm the one walking around with his heart, and it that makes me feel very very strange, to be honest with you. And I I'm I'm having to deal with that right now. I, more I'm dealing with. I wish I could do something for the mother, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know that there is anything that I can do, to be honest. But acknowledging these things is a good thing in the first place, though. I mean, that's a that's a step. Coming from the the recipient's side, your side, can you do you feel that the experience overall, after you you know embraced these feelings of discomfort and went into the situation to meet uh, this hero's family, do you feel it's a positive experience for you? Are you is this something you're glad that you did, or you glad you oh, were I'm able to meet them? Oh, I'm absolutely thrilled I did it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I love this family. They love me. They are incredible with me. Yeah. Uh, because they, I, the, um, the it took the it took um, the the father couldn't warm up to me the first time, but this time he really did. And um, I, I've met almost the entire family, and I, I mean they're hugging me, and you know, and they're crying while they're hugging me, and they're telling me we're so glad you got his heart. Mm. And you know, the thing I've always heard when I was doing uh, when I was with transplant speakers was the, the donor families always said it was the only thing being a do- donating was the only thing that made sense out of tragedy. Mm-hmm. And I guess I see that now on a firsthand basis in a way I never saw before. Wow. And I saw you at, at, at transplant speakers and these folks came and they weren't really sure what was going to happen. And so um, you kind of took recipients into a room, you sat them down um, and it was like everybody was holding their breath like, what is going to happen? And then you just kind of listened to everyone's story. You you showed the similarities, and then you kind of let them know how they can use that to save more lives. When they left that room, I could just feel like relief. So everybody loves that experience, right? Like that's one that they say, oh, we need to start that back up. We need to do more of that. But I just saw it with that uh, room full of people that that you impacted, and now it seems like you're on a larger scale trying to impact more. So, what what's the kind of feedback that that you're getting, uh, opening up and sharing your story, your journey? Well, I, you know, the the book is certainly um, the biggest way of doing that that I've done, 
and I've been getting amazing feedback from it. Um, it's really weird. I mean, nobody does letters anymore. <laughs> they hunt you down on Facebook and leave you a message. <laughs> That's what we do. <laughs> right. And, 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 um, and I've gotten some really, really heartwarming letters. Uh, you know, one, one woman wrote me telling me she never understood what her brother went through because he went through open heart surgery as a child. And she said she never understood what he went through until she read my book. Another one, a mother, got in touch with me to tell me that because um, I talk about how um, it's, a, it's a real problem with a lot of mothers. They get – if a child is sick, they get overbearing on the child. They, they, they abandon the family trying mm. to save the child. Mm. And they end up getting divorced and hurting the child more. And this woman wrote me saying that she had, a, she had an autistic son. And she was doing that. And her husband, her husband had already left, and she realized what she went. Oh my gosh, that's what I'm doing. And she realized what she did. She called her husband back, and they're back together again, which makes me feel thrilled. Mm-hmm. So all these different, you know, um, people react in different ways. But you know, I've gotten a lot of people who've had heart things get in touch with me, whether they were transplants or they've they've had um, valve replacements or they've or, or they have a really bad situation with their heart, and they, 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 and they write me and they tell me how, 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 how much the book helped them, and um, that is beyond satisfying to me. That's exactly what I wanted to happen. Man, and your journey—it um, sounds like uh, you're meant to help others in, mm-hmm. in any way, shape, or form. Um, you you talk to us. We can hear your passion. We want to follow you. I'm sure more people will want to follow you, get in touch with you. So uh, tell us those avenues besides like stalking you on Facebook, which we don't <laughs> recommend anyone. But uh, so tell us how to find you. They, they can find me on um, on my website, www.gratefulguilt.com. And you can message me there if you need to. You can find me on Facebook, my regular Facebook page or my author page, Stephen Stephen Taibbi author is my Facebook page for the book. Um, so those are the, I'm also on Twitter. Uh, so I can be found in all those, all those ways, you know, and I'm open to talking to anybody. I mean, I go all the time. So-and-so is needing a heart transplant. Can they speak to you? And yeah, of course you can. And I, I look forward to, do, to doing those kind of things. Uh, I've actually get a lot of phone calls from people where the people are just really sick and mm-hmm. they just want somebody who can help their loved one get through an illness. And that's fine with me, too. I don't care what it is. You know, if you're facing something, uh, if I can help, I'm there. Wow. And and we appreciate you. We know that that is uh, of comfort to a lot of folks, just a mentor, somebody who's been there, done mm-hmm. that and is now on the other side and is so passionate and filled with life um, that we can hear coming through the the mic. So again, grateful guilt living in the shadow of my heart. We hope that you check it out. Stephen Taibbi, a guest here on The Gifted Life, and we hope that you um, continue to keep us up to date on what it is that you're doing, and we'd love to visit with you again. That would be my pleasure. All right. Go out and change the world, man. One person (laughs) making a difference. I love it. Thank you. on The Gifted Life, we like to take a moment for mental health. Sarah, what are we going to talk about today? Okay, so today we're going to go ahead and talk about something that's pretty popular and based off of 
a researcher who I'm very obsessed with, and you should all go buy her books and read her blog and follow her Instagram. Am I going to be uncomfortable? Yes. (laughs) Her name is Brene Brown, and if you haven't seen her TED Talk, it's one of the top five in the YouTube world. Um, And she talks about vulnerability and connection. She has a special on Netflix as well, I saw. Yes, she does. She's very popular. She's a... PhD social worker, so of course I love her because that's what I do. Right. But she really had some groundbreaking research in the last 10 years or so about vulnerability, which can, for a lot of people, translate to weakness, Mm -hmm. being vulnerable. But really what she found was the more you are vulnerable, Mm -hmm. um, the more it leads to better connections with people and truly a happier life. So have you ever had a moment where you had why really some... Keep, why does she keep looking at me, Adam? <laughs> I know, I'm looking at you. I know, you. like, so uncomfortable right I've now. I've never seen you be vulnerable. Oh, my gosh. Not in front of you. It's, I have to be surrounded by people I like. I mean, I like you. <laughs> people I trust. It's hard, Sarah. It's, it's very hard, but have you ever had a moment where you're talking with someone and you are so uncomfortable about something you want to say or a conversation you want to have, but then you do it, you make yourself vulnerable, and the outcome is... Very good. Yes. It's very positive, and you just walk away feeling so much better. You Doesn't that happen? Always feel better after, right? That but, you did it. Yeah, but it's still so hard because you have to share a piece of yourself that's not comfortable. Right. Like if you're angry about something, or if something someone has done has hurt me tense you. Up, Sarah. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Like a stomach hurts trying to, you know, right. feel better after. Yeah. Yeah. And tough it's combos. just, it's, it's tough conversations, but it's also just being more vulnerable in your daily life too mm-hmm. and being authentic. And it's hard because, you know, it's hard to know yourself fully too. Right. Yeah. And we want to protect ourselves. That's right. Yes. And that's the thing is we have this like innate probably like human thing of protecting ourselves from getting hurt Mm -hmm. and from suffering Mm -hmm. so it's that's why it's so scary to be vulnerable right it seems counterintuitive that's right but the research shows and what Brene has discovered is that actually if you do open yourself up to being vulnerable and to being more authentic you really will have a better connection with anyone and I'll say it three more times you'll be so much happier (laughs) (laughs) say it again (laughs) <laughs> so much happier. You got, can you just give me a push? So get there. Just give me a push over the Let's line. Let's go. I'll force you. I'll ask you some yeah. uncomfortable questions if you want. <laughs> you do all the time. No, it's good. It's good. We're learning. We're yeah. growing. Right. Um, it's just tough to get there. And it's tough to kind of get out of the habit of uh, right. people see me in this light. And I got to continue uh, walking this trek. Right. So take a side road. Yeah. You yeah. don't have to put that brave face on all the time. You can be vulnerable and open. Yeah, I, I think I like it's it. good to have a daily reminder to yourself as well mm-hmm. that, um, you know, I'm going to start this day out by doing something that puts me out of my comfort zone. Yeah. You know, and then you can start to build that into your life. And, right. Uh, That's a good. Learn to take risks and, and put yourself out there. All right, Adam, do you want to take over the segment? <laughs> no, she's I'm trying to already, be helpful. Y'all. All right, so get out there and make a change, guys. You have a topic you want Miss Sarah to handle, info at thegiftedlife.org. We'd love to hear from you. In every episode of The Gifted Life, we take a moment to honor a hero. Today, we learn about Travis Buzzard from his mother. Travis is my oldest child. I was a young single mother when I had him, so he grew up without any luxuries, except he was very loved. Later, I had another son who specialized in pushing Travis's buttons, but they grew up and developed a special bond. Travis lived life on his own terms. 
Eventually, he landed in New Orleans, and although he wasn't a native, the city seemed to embrace him the minute he set foot inside the city. Travis was a loyal friend, and if he saw someone in need who was trying, he would jump in to help. He loved to travel and went to Ireland and Spain. Ireland was his favorite. Travis was not an angel by any stretch of the imagination, but he was well-intentioned, a great person to have in your corner in good times or bad, and his love was always unconditional. A fire took his life unexpectedly, leaving his brother and I forever changed. Donating his organs was one of the hardest things I have ever had to do, but I know it was what he wanted to do. Travis, we love you and miss you to the moon and back. Now we pause and say thank you to Travis Joel Buzzard for the gift of life. In today's question and answer segment, oh, Adam, this is for you. How are you able to keep a patient alive when you take the old heart out, but the new heart is not in yet? Good question. That's a great question. And uh, I think probably a pretty common one because how are you alive if you don't have a heart right. mm-hmm. in your chest to beat right. and pump blood around the body? Uh, so if you think about what the heart does, is you know, it pumps blood both to the lungs to exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide and then back to the heart. And then it, the heart pumps out to the body to get oxygenated blood out to uh, your vital organs and your arms and legs and your brain and all that important stuff that we uh, use Kinda every day that, to right? live our yeah. lives. <laughs> kind of important. You know, so uh, people probably are familiar with the term bypass uh, or uh, cardiac bypass or heart lung machine, all the same, same thing. Um, so when they're removing an old heart, basically need to oxygenate the blood and keep it circulating through the body. So in, I guess the short way of explaining it would be they would attach a tube to the major blood vein uh, providing blood back to the heart. Mm -hmm. And so it makes a continuous connection. That tube goes into a machine. Uh, The blood goes in the machine, is circulated, and CO2 is pulled out of the blood, oxygen is put in the blood, and then the tube coming out of the machine goes back to the aorta, which pumps blood to your brain and the rest of your body. Technology, y'all. Yeah. So it's just a centrifugal pump and an oxygenator Mm -hmm. to oxygenate the blood. Um, And as long as those are hooked up, they can um, artificially pump blood, uh, oxygenated blood, rather, Mm -hmm. around the body. Uh, until they get ready to put the new heart in. And then when they're ready to put the new heart in, they unhook those tubes, uh, quickly sew the vessels back to the heart. Mm -hmm. uh, So everything's back in anatomical position. Wow. And then uh, sometimes the heart can restart uh, on its own. Uh, Sometimes it takes a little jolt of Mm -hmm. electricity to Mm -hmm. get the heart pumping again. And once everything's connected and the heart is pumping, uh, you're good to go with your new heart. Wow, a miracle. Yeah. That's pretty Mm -hmm. neat. Yeah. You make it sound so simple. Uh, yeah. Connect and <laughs> oxygenate blood, and that's how you go. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, if y'all have questions for us, please email us at info at thegiftedlife.org. Great podcast today, guys. We appreciate you sticking with us, listening to the end. We have to thank Stephen. We learned so much from him, right, guys? Mm -hmm. Um, Amazing. We hope to have him back on the podcast in the future. Uh, Should we thank this guy, Sarah? Yeah, he did okay. The one and only. (laughs) Adam Keaton, Lopez Advanced Practice Coordinator, sitting in for Joe. Have we found Joey? 
No. Where is he? Is he practicing vulnerability somewhere? What are we doing? I hope he is. <laughs> Adam's looking at me like, what is happening on this podcast? Uh, but we appreciate you uh, stepping up, Adam, and mm-hmm. helping us learn today. And then, guys, you can always find us, thegiftedlife.org. That's where you can find all the episodes. Our goal is to make life happen. Or listen to us wherever you listen to your podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and leave us a five-star rating so other people can find us. Or find us on social media and like our Facebook page, The Gifted Life Podcast, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Gifted Life Pod. You can also give us a call, 504-648-3477. We may even play your message on the podcast. Totally thought you were going to sing it. Like, I was like, hoping for it, Adam! (laughs) But not yet. One day, guys, here on The Gifted Life. We appreciate you uh, staying with us. Okay, so um, that's a no, I think, right? (laughs) All right, so we appreciate you following The Gifted Life. We hope that you spread the word. Our goal is to make life happen. Save more lives. You're part of our team, and we appreciate you. We hope that you go out today and do something you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen. Talk soon. This is a production of LOPA, or the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreaux, and Sarah Blakemore. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Carraway. Intern is Rebecca Ranham. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez. <laughs>